0: Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle Podcast. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 161. I hope everybody is having a fantastic week out there in drumland. We're having a great week over here at the Drum Shuffle World headquarters. Uh, we are headed firmly into fall and the Halloween season, and we have a related interview today. I'll explain more in just a second, but um, we're going to be joined by Dylan Jack of the Dylan Jack Quartet in just a moment with one of the most unique albums of this season, in my opinion. And we're going to talk all about that right after this message from our sponsor, Lost Cabo's Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Lost Cabo's Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center, or heart, of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of Red Hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos drumsticks, visit them online at loscabostrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory revolution with Los Cabos drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're going to be joined today by Dylan Jack uh, and his group. The Dylan Jack Quartet is about to release uh, an album. Um, and I am not a uh, a French speaker, but it's Ein Quartet de Ground. Um, this album is coming out on October 27th, 23. So here in just about a week or so, But it is, uh, quote, a spontaneously composed soundtrack to the 1922 film Nosferatu, uh, which, of course, was kind of the predecessor to the modern-day Dracula. It is such a cool idea, and they're doing uh, all kinds of shows around this uh, up in the Massachusetts area. So if you can grab some tickets, you should do so. But this is a really, really interesting project, Um, but it is essentially they've created a live music accompaniment for this silent film uh, here in the Halloween season, and it is really, really cool. I didn't get it at first. I'll be the first to admit that. But once I figured out what this project was about, it just became uber cool to me. So I was really happy uh, to be able to hook up with Dylan, and we did this interview a while back, so I got a really early copy of the record. Um, But we did this interview back in, I think, late July or early August, and I've saved this episode to coincide with the release of the record on the 27th of October. Uh, And I know that you're going to get a lot out of this because Dylan's just such a cool guy, and does such great work, and his playing is so tasty. Uh, So please, help me welcome to the Drum Shuffle, Dylan Jack. Hey, good afternoon, Dylan. How's it going, man? It's going fantastic. How are you? I cannot complain a bit. Um, Boston, correct? Is that where you're at today?
1: Yeah, so I've been based in a small town called Tewksbury, about 25 minutes to a half hour north of Boston. But uh, my wife and I recently, as of three months ago, moved to Bristol, Rhode Island. But uh, most of my playing career and teaching career is still up in Massachusetts.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Well, uh, it, you know, I mean, when people say Rhode Island and, and Massachusetts, um, you know, I always assumed it was two different states, but I guess a lot of people kind of commute in and out, right? I mean, that's kind of local, so yes. to speak. Yes.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um a lot of people, I mean a lot of teachers too commute from New York to teach at Berkeley too. So it's kind of a the whole, you know, Northeast is very much uh accessible, which is nice to people living in Rhode Island, Connecticut, Maine, Vermont, whatever it may be, even New York. A kind of Boston and that central area is is you know, it's enticing to a lot of people from different states and oftentimes the commute is very worth it. So it's like its own little community, you know, New England, New York, all that sort of Northeast.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. Well, our old friend, Rod Morgenstein, you know, he commuted from Long Island to Berkeley for 25 years or something and just recently retired. So, um, I, I know, Hi. I know that's definitely a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, cool, man. So yeah, even, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: No, I was going to say just, uh, aside from Bert, like I knew a lot, somebody who would, uh, commute from Connecticut and would teach at the conservatory. And you know, what's nice is a lot of those places will put teachers up for a few days so they don't have to go home. So again, it's a very enticing uh, career if you can get that for sure.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. Well, so tell me a little bit, you know, for those listeners that may not be familiar uh, with your career, we'll start at the very beginning. Um, (laughs) So I'm assuming you grew up there. How did you you know, get into music and drumming in particular. Do you come from a musical family?
1: Kind of. Uh, My dad played guitar, uh, you know, in some bands and a few shows here and there. But I think the important thing was there was always a guitar or an acoustic guitar, an electric guitar in the house. So it was in our, like my brother and I, it was in our grasp. So music um, was not necessarily played a lot, but. you know, we had access to, to those instruments and just kind of strummed along. And of course we grew up in the MTV age where that was pivotal for, for he and I being introduced to music in the nineties and things like that. So, um, not necessarily a very musical family, but a family that encouraged, you know, musical participation, which was nice.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. Well, I mean, if you're if your dad was a guitarist, I, I'm assuming when you said drums he was probably like, Oh hell no.
1: <laughs> no, no, the opposite. The opposite. That man came home from work one day and said, Somebody my coworker is getting rid of this drum set. Do you guys want a drum set? And we just said, Yeah.
0: Of oh, course we do. That's awesome, man. Well, you know, so it was Yeah, I, I joke all the time, you know, parents that wow. let their kids take up drumming, there's a special spot in the afterlife for them for sure, you know?
1: Yes. Absolutely. And, you know, God bless my parents and dealing with, you know, daily after school rehearsals and then practicing after rehearsals and, you know, uh lugging me when I couldn't drive to rehearsals or performances. So, yeah, they've Again, very supportive, although they weren't super, super musical, um, at least on my mother's side. But my dad, yeah, he had some.
0: Yeah, that's, that's awesome, man. So at, at what age did the drum set show up? I mean, did you start as a, as a really early on in life?
1: Yeah, I was, uh, I was eight years old. I remember I was in third grade, eight years old. We got a, one of those made-in-Japan kits, like a stencil kit. Yeah and um I, I didn't know anything about that at the time but um it was just two rack toms a floor tom with no legs and a bass drum and one super thick pingy cymbal That's nice. all it was and it was the greatest thing in the world to me as an 8 year old
0: <laughs> Yeah for sure man I mean I think we all started on mm-hmm. one of those made in Japan stencil kits you know the CB700s or or whatever it was mm-hmm. you know and it was just the greatest thing ever so when you when you first started gravitating towards drumming, did you know? You said your parents were very supportive. Did they get you involved in any kind of formal lessons, or were you doing school band those kind of things?
1: No, and they were never really ones to um, kind of push it. It was one of those things that if I asked, they would say sure. And I, I took one lesson at a local music shop. And they handed me stick control. I still have that copy to this day. <laughs> I did, yeah, I did one lesson playing. Uh, I did one lesson I did, I think, like six different stickings taught me to hold my, my sticks. And I really enjoyed it. But for some reason, I don't know why, I never went back. And then up until age 18, I was self-taught with just one lesson. Yeah. Um, well, and it's I because it. they I regret it yeah
0: it's because they handed you stick control at your first lesson that's why you didn't go back so
1: <laughs> yeah and you know it's funny as an, as an educator that's the first thing I do now to my students is here's stick control boom yeah. ham the first page and this is what you guys we'll be working on for the rest of your life yeah so yeah
0: yeah essentially well you know I mean I find that interesting because you know my background is very similar to yours you know it was just beg mom until you know you get the drum set or whatever and then put on your favorite Zeppelin record or, you know, Motley Crue or Kiss or whatever it was at the time, Aerosmith. And, you know, just I was self-taught. Um, and when I look back now as a guy in his mid-40s, I go, gosh, I really wish I had done stick control and and really learned how to do the rudiments right and and molar technique and all those things um, you know, so I, I'm assuming when you graduated high school and decided to kind of pursue this, w- was it a real big shock to the system to go in as a self-taught drummer and start doing kind of the formal education?
1: Oh man. Uh, it was, but even before that, when I graduated, I started taking lessons and but I've been playing my whole life, you know concerts and gigs. And But, man, I was rejected from Berkeley. I got sort of um, I had teachers tell me I should change my career when I was at uni- the University of Massachusetts. I mean, I went in super green. I wasn't ready, you know, um I got in, I showed them that I could play, but I had pretty bad experience with that, and i um I don't think I'm like not going to say that's what shaped me into being like a hardcore practicer or anything but um but yeah, I was. I see kids now that I have, teaching summer camps, music camps, or even lessons, you know, the, the, the ability these kids have at such a young age because of lessons, and and it was a real downer for me to look back at that, and I'm like, man, I wish I did lessons. But yeah, I mean, I went into it as green as could I could, and um, it was rough. You know, it was really uh, disheartening to hear some of the things and to be rejected and, and all of that. Um, but yeah, anybody listening, take lessons have your children take lessons you know it's uh it's very very uh formative time, and i think we you know as uh, they're very valuable lessons are huge with a good teacher of course
0: yeah i mean it goes without saying you got to find the 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 right guy or girl to to teach your kids or teach yourself you know um Mm -hmm. i i just remember you know when i was in high school Um, and I certainly don't want to make this about me, but I, I remember when I had the realization, you know, I, I'd played a few gigs with a garage band and, you know, thought I was, you know, the cat's pajamas or whatever. And one of my guidance counselors was like, well, you know, you should try to do the, the Berkeley summer program as, you know, a sophomore in high school or whatever, and see if that's something that would interest you. And, you know, I requested some information, you know, they snail mailed me, um, you know, some charts and they were like, okay, now play this Latin groove at 80 BPM, a hundred BPM and 120 BPM. And I was like, I have no idea what this means. They might as well have sent me like a, you know, a space shuttle launch control book. (laughs) I, I mean, there was just no hope. And I knew right then, Hey, I've got to really think about doing something different here. Um, you know, so I, I just kind of wanted to drive that point home that there's great opportunities out there, but you got to be ready for those opportunities.
1: Yeah. And I find that, um, when you're faced with that kind of stuff, something you don't understand, um, words and terminology. And, uh, that's the biggest, for me, it was always the biggest, um, Inspiration, like I now, I have to do this. Now I have to learn this. Now I have to get a book on this. I have to sort of tackle that issue. And so, um, you can definitely use that to your advantage to grow as a musician, drummer, uh, or anything.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, you said you attended UMass. Um, were you studying, uh, you know, classical, contemporary, jazz? What, or was it all of the above?
1: Yeah. So I did uh, a mixture of both. Uh, contemporary, uh, with, you know, mostly jazz and some mallet percussion. And then I ended up leaving and then I ended up going to get my bachelor's degree in Minnesota. So um, I left the state and, and, and basically because Berkeley rejected me, as I said before, it's like, I'm not going to sit around and wait to audition again. I'm going to go somewhere else and get my degree, which I did. And so, um, but that school that I went to was strictly um, contemporary music, drum set, based.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And I, you know, presumably, and I don't know what part of Minnesota you were in, but presumably you were getting some bandstand education as well while you were there.
1: Yeah. Um, I wish I got a little bit more, um, I'm a different person now and I look back and I took advantage of the opportunity, but you know, I wish I took advantage of a little bit more. Um, but I did get bandstand opportunity, but mostly, which was interesting was I got more, a lot more, um, professional experience while I was out there too. So I did a lot more playing out than I did in like the school big band or something like that. I was doing more outside playing, even with some of the teachers, which is really nice, which is a great experience.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. Well, and I, you know, I tell people all the time the best education you're ever going to get in the music business is to go out and gig, you know? I mean, I, Mm -hmm. I, I just think there's so much you can learn from that I'm not downplaying the education piece of it. I'm just saying that if you want to do it for a living as a professional, um, you know, unless you're going to be doing movie scores or, or Broadway or something like that, just get out and play. That's the big thing.
1: Yeah. You know, and it's interesting. Um, I'll tell my students that too, who want to pursue a career in music. I'll give them the pros and cons. And then, you know, this guy is on my mind because my wife and I watched his, his documentary yesterday. But Frank Zappa, someone like Frank Zappa, who just has a go get him attitude, like anybody can have. You go to the library and you can absorb all that information, and you can, you know, be college graduate level just by learning on your own. You know, it's so crucial to just you know self study. You know, school's great, connections, all of that stuff. The education's awesome, but getting out there and and doing it and taking the risks and sitting down and like putting your mind to work and becoming an individual voice. It's, you know, you don't need that strong educational background, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, somebody like, I mean, you mentioned Zappa, you know, somebody like that, he was clearly born with like three brains, right? I mean, he's just like the the smartest guy in any room that he walks into. Um, But his drive, That's something that can't Mm. be taught, right? Just the, right, you know, I mean, I don't know how many thousands of hours of tape still exist in his vault that we'll never hear, you know, but he was constantly creating. Um, I I just can't imagine having that much creative juice flowing all the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it's inspiring. You know, maybe we can all, you know, Reach that level of Zappa creativity, but at least we can be inspired by that and kind of learn that there's a lot that we can do on our own. We don't need to go do, you know, spend thousands and thousands. We can learn and be inspired and, and try to get some of that drive.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. Well, I mean, that's a great point. Um, so, so after. Getting the undergrad degree in Minnesota, did you move back to Massachusetts at that point, or did you stay in the Midwest for a bit? Uh, Talk to me about that uh, career transition.
1: Yeah, so I had it in my head as soon as I graduated, I was going to come back, and I did. I came right back, and I hit the ground running. Cold emails for late teaching and cold emails for bands. So as soon as I graduated, came home, about a month later, I was playing you know, three, four times a week with a blues band, um, you know, playing kind of blues rock around New England up in Maine, Southern Massachusetts, uh, you know, sometimes in New York with them, which is cool. Uh, so, yeah, I, I kind of joined the, the the blues rock world as soon as I graduated. Gotcha.
0: And, and you know, you've been teaching, I, I'm assuming, ever since then, because, you know, obviously your teaching chops are, are there, but... Um, Were you giving lessons as soon as you got back to town as well?
1: I was giving lessons two months since uh, I had two months of not teaching and then I got right into it. So I was pretty quick. Gotcha. So you were doing very, very quick. You
0: you were pursuing both paths then both, you know, giving lessons and gigging and all that stuff. So um, where help me out here, because I know that you also have kind of a a heavy background. You know, I mean, you've played in thrash bands and things like that. Um, So talk to me a little bit about, you know, some of those career choices. Were you just playing in whatever opportunity was available? Or were you like, no, I'm going to do this particular genre of music. And then talk to me a little bit about you, you know, the transition back to jazz because, you know, I think thrash metal to jazz is a, you know, it's a, a pretty, pretty big leap, but it's awesome. It's cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, jazz was always an afterthought to me. In fact, it was, you know, heavy metal, death metal was my first love when it came to music. Um, I mean, I, I grew up with it. Um, hearing bands like white zombie from my brother Uh, you know, the early Metallica stuff, Pantera, all that, you know, that great stuff, but um, there were, you know, music magazines, and as a kid, I would go into the mall with my friends, and I would buy, there were three magazines I would buy, it was Circus, uh, Hit Parader, and I think it was like Metal Maniacs, and I would look up every band I could that looked cool, and I would just listen, or buy, like cold by records or CDs, and listen to everything I could. But um, I mean, it was just the music that I was drawn to. You know, I wasn't an aggressive kid, but there was something about distorted guitars, you know, guttural vocals, and I think I've always been fascinated with some of like the the horror theme stuff behind it. And so it was kind of like a like a fantasy world in a way that you could live in while listening to it. And then you've got these, you know, blasting drums, these heavy riffs, and these, you know, starts and stops, and then, you know, just this very theatric kind of thing, almost. And I think any kid at that age, it was kind of sort of, you know, at least in my circle, was just engulfed with the theatrics of that music. You know, even some of the history behind it, you know, even the Norwegian black metal scene where, um, you know, there's the story of people burning churches and, you know, doing all this weird stuff and it's this mystical idea behind this music that I think I was drawn to. Not that I'm going to pursue that path, but, you know, they... Um, it was this whole mysticism behind the music that i was drawn to and ended up playing you know as early as gigging, as early as 15 playing that kind of music believe it or not in basement and church basements of all things they'd be renting out these venues and it would be church basements where these really heavy metal death metal bands would come together and just play 30-minute sets and people are thrashing against the walls and you know being respectable i respecting the venue of course but you know Um, so playing these, these sort of underground venues and, you know, VFWs, churches and all that stuff, um, was whole part of that scene, you know, and meeting a lot of people, learning a lot of different bands. But what was interesting was, um, wasn't listening to jazz music at all, but I found that I was playing like an improviser or I was improvising. I was never playing the same parts twice. And so I even got complaints from, my band, oh, my yeah. band was just saying like they like you know you don't play the same stuff like where's that fill that you normally do and like what do you mean that fill I normally do I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> and, and so um, and then I was introduced to the Mahavishnu Orchestra oh, and yeah. then I realized oh like this is also a world of jazz this is also something that you know you ask Wynton Marsalis it's not jazz but this world comes from that history and so i you know i learned about my vishnu orchestra i learned about the the whole tony williams lifetime and i'm like oh my god like double bass can fit in jazz wow who, who would have thought and so that was crucial for me and then i ended up getting more into that kind of music the less heavier stuff and um you know but then again i think the whole metal Experience that I've grown up with and the, the heaviness and the emotional impact of it has kind of dictated the direction I've gone in in jazz. Like the music I really love, like Albert Eiler, the more aggressive music of the 1960s, the more aggressive John Coltrane, not necessarily the Giant Steps John Coltrane, which is great. I love jazz. I love all eras of it, but there's something about that 60s avant-garde that is is really beautiful to me, and so uh, I still kind of carry that mysticism of heavy metal into my jazz, I guess, um, and so I just I mean I ended up getting a master 's degree and you know we 'll call it jazz, but it was modern American music where we focused on you know jazz as well, so I ended up you know later on in my life was I just made that transition to to the improvised world, and then believe it or not now i 'm Teaching jazz history at a college in Boston, so from the most heaviest of heavy metal, I'm now teaching kids about Louis Armstrong, and you know how the music today wouldn't be the same without that that music they would they would consider like their grandparents' music, you know, and how beautiful it is. And listen to this Louis Armstrong solo, you know, Eddie Van Halen wouldn't be ripping solos if it wasn't for Louis Armstrong's West End Blues in 1928. So. Um, yeah, it seems like an interesting path to change from, from uh, heavy metal to jazz, but it made sense to me. And I'm happy it did. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, yeah, man. And, you know, I think we're all too quick to say, oh, well, that's not in a genre that I listen to. Or, you know what I mean? Like, we, we want to mm-hmm. put simple, easy labels on everything. Um, and, and the world's not so simple or easy right I mean, yeah, but because you know some of the stuff that you that you mentioned you know heavy metal influences like you said Metallica and you know, mm-hmm. I don't think it's any stretch when you listen to the first three Metallica records, I hear classical music very yeah. you know just plainly as day, you know it, it all comes from you know classical kind of things, you know, the shredding guitar, You know, that's stuff that Paganini and and those guys were doing back hundreds of years ago, in some cases. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and jazz and the blues and everything else has influenced every subgenre of rock music to its core, I think. So, you know, I don't know that it's that big a stretch, but I think to people that aren't, you know, maybe creative types, they're like, Oh, heavy metal to jazz—that's crazy. But it's not really, if you sit down and think about it,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm in that same you know same camp that you're talking about. It's so a lot of it is so similar. Um, there's a great Ornette Coleman quote uh, who was who said, "You know, there are twelve notes that satisfy the whole world. You know, no note has a style." Kind of how you play it, how you attack it. You know, the same notes that Coltrane is blowing on his horn are the same notes that, you know, Kirk Hammett is playing on his guitar solo and, you know, insert Metallica song here. This is how they're being played. So, you know, you can get into the whole philosophical thing about like genre, like what is genre? Let's think beyond genre, that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's, I don't want to get too too deep on that, but, you know, very similar, I believe.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. Well, I, I just, you know, I do like getting deep on these subjects because it makes me think and, and rethink certain things, you know, you know what I mean? But, you know, you were talking about the mysticism of, of metal and, and heavy rock and, and those things, you know, some of that mysticism is now gone. You know, when I was a kid growing up, there really wasn't any internet, you know, I mean, I had never Mm -hmm. gone onto AOL or whatever until I was a senior in high school. So, you know, now you can find out what your favorite rock star ate for lunch, like (laughs) 20 minutes ago. But back when I was coming up, it was, you know, you just didn't know things. Gosh, I wonder what the new record's going to sound like. I wonder what the new logo's going to be, you know, just all those things. And some of that's gone in modern music.
1: I think a lot of it's gone. And I think a lot of the younger generation feels it. And unfortunately me as a 37 year old, I still feel it, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that sort of, um, you know, I, I try sometimes to, to, you know, experience that as more and more, but I feel like I find myself, uh, I can't, you know, I miss, I miss that, that mysticism that you're talking about, you know, cold buying a CD because of the cover or the record label to like, oh, go, Wow. Cannibal Corpse is on this record label. They must be awesome because they're on the same label as Cannibal Corpse. I'll buy this. Right. You know, and they take it home and you have this whole new band that you never knew existed because of that record label. It's like, ah, that, and then the the, the interesting thing is people like, in the bands like Slayer, like people actually thought that they were devil worshipping, like evil people. But when you talk, when you see them like with their family, Having a good time, like out to eat, out to eat nowadays. Like, oh my god, there's nothing mystical about Slayer. They're just normal people. So that's one of the things metal brought to me too. It's like I figured these people were were like out there, like they were, you know, you know, doing weird stuff. But in fact, they shop at the same stores I do, and they, <laughs> right. you know, they put Christmas trees during Christmas time, and they put presents under the tree for their kids. You know, it's this this world that you know, we didn't know that then. And, and again, I missed that. I missed being naive about the whole metal scene and thinking it was a lot more gory than it it was.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those guys are taking their family to Applebee's on Friday night, you know, if they're not on tour. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty vanilla. (laughs) Um, You know, somebody asked me once, you know, they, they were like, you know, gosh, I wonder, I was at a show and they were like, I wonder what's going on backstage, you know? And I was like, they're probably talking about what cholesterol medication they're on now you know i mean it's not yeah. it's not like some wild crazy party these guys are in their 50s now <laughs> you know they they're, they're talking about their kid's soccer tournament i mean that's just yeah you know and i think i think the point is you know some of that is lost in this day and age you know social media and instagram and you know snapchat and all those things like you can find out what lars had for lunch yesterday not, not mm-hmm. hard to figure it out, but you know, 30 years ago you were like, gosh, I wonder what he's going to do on this upcoming album. And you had to wait, right? Yeah. There was no sneak preview. There was no leaking it to, you know, social media. You, you had to wait and go buy the album.
1: Yeah. You know, you mentioned that too, but I, um, the AOL thing the back of one of the metal magazines I used to buy would have email addresses that you could, you could email the bands and oftentimes it was their instant messenger screen name so i would you know creepily message them on AOL when they were online and actually talk to them about their music they were really open to talk to this kid about their music and that was to me that was huge like oh my god they're actually they're real people who go online <laughs> it was <laughs> it was amazing so but yeah it was you know, having the access to the email address, like, wow, I can email my favorite band. Like wh- wh- what is email? First of all, and how do I get one of these addresses to email these people? Yeah. Or can I use it as screen? So yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was and just a world.
0: Yeah. It was a, it was a whole mm-hmm. different time and world. And, and I agree with that, but you know, I, I, I want to talk about the new release as well. And again, you're, mm-hmm. you're probably going to have to help me with this because you know, it's, um, how will I say this? And I mean this in the best way possible. It's slightly an esoteric um, project, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the yeah, album, absolutely, Um absolutely. It, But I, I listened to it this afternoon, and a couple of things that that really stick out to me. I mean, you guys are going for the, you know, avant-garde improv- improvisation kind of kind of thing, I think, mm-hmm. and. It doesn't sound like a traditional, you know, spang-a-lang, spang-a-lang, you know, jazz record. (laughs) This isn't isn't your dad's bebop record, kids. No, Um, no. It's really cool, and it all makes a little more sense to me now that I know you come from a metal background. It it all makes way more sense to me. So help me out with the title of the album, and, and let's talk about the concept that it was based on.
1: Yeah, so I probably don't pronounce this correctly either, um, but I've always been telling people it's Aina Quartet de Grauens. And what it is, is it's basically a play on the original Nosferatu title, which was Nosferatu Aina uh, uh, Symphony de Grounds, which was a symphony of horror. So I changed it to a quartet of horror, which is um, the Dylan Jack Quartet. Um. And the whole, the Dylan Jack chat first of all, has been around for, since 2016. And we've had our iterations of jazz. And you talk about Spangalang, Spangalang. Our first record was pretty much that. Fresh out of grad school, you know, jazz harmony nerd. Like, let's do this really ridiculous chord that we don't have to do just because jazzers do it. <laughs> um, and so the second album was a little bit more free. And then fast forward to the... uh you know the pandemic. We ended up doing a record, which was completely free. Which um, fast forward to this year, we're releasing the album. Um, I've always had the idea of doing playing along to a silent film, but the idea was how do I do it and when do I do it. So the idea was brewing for a couple of years. And again, I've always been. I'm not a horror aficionado or anything. Like I'm not a. I don't have horror posters on my walls. I don't have a collection of horror movies. But there's something about Nosferatu that was really interesting to me. And it just so happened that last year was the centennial for the movie. So I said, all right, this has to happen. Like, we have to do this. And so I actually, I booked a concert before I did anything. I said, I went and visited the theater. I I booked it. I gave a deposit. And I emailed the guys and I said, all right, we're doing it. So I had to get to work on what I wanted to do. And so this whole project started off as not even a record. We were just going to play live to the movie. And then after we did the the theater, the shows, we were going to record our version of the movie. And so for months, I lived and breathed Dracula. I I read the book. I put two and two together with Nosferatu. Um, Who are these characters in Nosferatu? Because if you don't know, Nosferatu um, is based on... Bram Stoker's *Dracula*, and there was a whole lawsuit over it because the uh, Bram Stoker's uh, estate wasn't getting any money, and so they basically Nosferatu stole from Bram Bram Stoker and uh, in *Dracula*. So I, I read the entire book. I, I wrote little things on how the characters relate to Dracula and Nosferatu. I watched Nosferatu god knows how many times. And, um, what I ended up doing was I wrote four very small themes for each character. There's, uh, Hutter, Ellen, Nock, and of course, Count Orlok, who is Nosferatu, which of course means undead. It's like an Eastern European term for undead. And so there are four themes that we play throughout the film, and the entire film is improvised. It's we put we put those themes where we see fit. When there's a character on the screen, it can be guitar playing Orlok's theme, or it could be bass playing Orlok's theme, or it could be the trumpet playing Orlok's theme. There's really no boundary for, for my band of who wants to play what. It's we're on the scene you know, we listened to what they're doing and, and, and we, we pretty much improvised our way through it. And, um, we did a, a performance at a college in Lowell, Massachusetts. And then we did a performance in Peabody, Massachusetts, which is great. Cause it was right next to Salem, Massachusetts, which is Halloween capital of the world. <laughs> and of course we, we, we did them in October. So it was like, you know, you know, spooky time. And we had a decent crowd. It was, it was nice. And, um, one of the main reasons I decided to do this was because I've learned that people don't, oftentimes people don't want to come and sit and watch four people improvise. They want to do something. They want to, you know, there's just be something to it. So I said, why don't we just put a film and improvise to the film? That's how we got the Nosferatu thing. I always tell people more people saw the Nosferatu performance between the two performances that we did, um, and have seen me play in like two years. So those two show had, <laughs> right. had that many people there for those. And it was this whole eye opening experience for me. And of course I'm thinking more and more about what do I do with this now? Can I top this? What's the next step where I'm not repeating myself? Um, but interestingly enough, and I got to give credit to uh, Eric, the guitar player, he called me and he said, why don't we, after we do the film, why don't we record the themes, one take, and that's it. And then we'll put an album out. I was like, I like that idea. So we spent an entire day in the studio recording Nosferatu. Everything was one take on the film. We stopped halfway through for lunch, and then we finished it, and we didn't go back and do anything. So what you heard was hours and hours of rehearsal after two performances. So everything was put together. And then um, we... In about an hour, we put together an EP of improvised themes. Everything is one take. Everything is fresh and first ideas, best idea. And, um, you know, arranging, right, like, like a Count Basie head arrangement in a rehearsal. We sat there and we, we thought, okay, come in here, 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 here we go, let's go. And whatever happened, happened. That's awesome. You know, no man. fault. Yeah, yeah, no false starts, no nothing. And, and that was it, and that's our EP.
0: Well, I mean, I I think that's, it's a really unique and very creative way to, you know, when you were talking about, you know, the folks that came out to the live performances with the movie, right? You said Mm -hmm. more people saw me doing that. I I think it's a very unique and creative way to, as you said, people don't necessarily want to go to a club and watch four guys or or girls improvise for 40 minutes or whatever. So I, I think it was very smart on your part to kind of do it that way. Um, and I hope it brings you great success, you know, but I was kind of taken aback, you know, when I read that, Hey, this is based on this hundred year old movie. You know, I listened to it and I was like, man, wouldn't it be great if I had the movie and you had already done that. So I obviously mm-hmm. I came into this not knowing that, but, um, it's just really clever and, and I love things that are really clever. So congratulations on that.
1: No, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We're really excited about it. And, um, I know the band's really, uh, excited about the record and, you know, we have some performances in October this year. I think we have four performances scheduled, New York, Providence, and then two in Massachusetts. And then I think I'm going to kind of, uh, it to rest for a little bit i mean it's a lot of work it's really stressful and trying to book theaters is a real hassle um but i feel like you know this is the direction that this quartet's going to go in for a little bit at least um i'm lucky that uh i have a group of musicians who stay and want to play and i've had a band together for you know um how many years seven years in jazz that doesn't happen yeah you know, and improvised music doesn't happen. There's, there, everybody plays with each other and goes different directions. But I've been lucky to have uh the same musicians pretty much. I know Jerry, the trumpet player, joined a little bit later, but the same rhythm section for seven years. And yeah. that's not all we do. We play other, you know, we'll even play weddings with each other. We'll play jazz standards at a wedding. You know, there's just a, repu- a reputation between us. Three uh, that we play a lot with each other. We'll play straight-ahead weddings, but we'll also come together and put together an ostinato record, which is awesome. Yeah. That you know we're not afraid to venture into you know traditional jazz because we both love it. We're all educators. Every single one of us in the quartet, in some jazz idiom, we're all jazz edu- educators. So you know it's we're not thinking that our version of jazz is the best jazz. You know it's um, we take from everything that we can.
0: Yeah, for sure. The
1: world is world. Yeah, the world is changing, and people sometimes don't want to go listen to jazz anymore. Unfortunately.
0: Yeah, well, and you know, I and I've said this to other great jazz players that I've had on this show. Um, you know, I, I've had Bill Stewart, I've had Peter Erskine. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I've I've had some heavy hitters in the world of jazz, and you know one of my big knocks on jazz is like, if you go to New York and you go out to see, um, you know, some bigger name player, everybody in the audience is probably going to be a jazz cat. You know what I refer Mm -hmm. to as a jazz cat (laughs) and, and you either fit into that group or you don't. And there is no gray area. So that's my knock on the jazz world. It's like, oh, well, maybe you're just not smart enough to understand it. And and there's that kind of air that goes around. And again, you know, my, my meter is good music or bad music, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, that's just all there is. And sometimes, you know, being a non-jazz guy, a non-jazz cat, I get the whole... Um, you're not one of us kind of things and i and i don't think that should be that way
1: no, and you're hundred percent right. I still feel that when i 'm around people you know that there There are those who who are very open minded and and there are those who, as they sing in the jazz world, vibe each other you know so there's there's a lot of vibing going on in those places, but I think i I always tell people to like. Jazz is thought of as this high art and it is, absolutely. But you have to realize where this music came from. This music came from low down blues. This music came from people who didn't know how to play instruments, picked up their instruments, um, and, and 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 you know, figured things out on their own. Or, you know, there was no rule. There was no jazz theory. You know, like all of this stuff came from 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 nothing. You know, and it was creative and it was inventive and somebody came and put rules to it. And I think if you keep that in your head, it'll keep you humble. Like this music is, is like dance music. Listen to New Orleans music. Listen to Congo Square. Like examples, obviously we can't listen to music from Congo Square because it's, you know, it predates recording, but like examples of what you would hear, African music, you know, homemade, uh, wind instruments and drums. Like that's the basis of jazz. Yeah. Think about this music came from that. Keep yourself humble. Don't get, don't vibe anybody. Cause you know, these people were playing this music way before you inventing this music. Remember where it came from. I think that's the most important thing for people who, who play jazz, who have a tendency to vibe each other. It's remember where this stuff came from that you're, you know, making a living at or want to make a living at. Yeah. I, they well, weren't playing sharp 11, 19, whatever, <laughs> you know, it so was, yeah.
0: I, I mean, I agree with you. I completely. Um, you know, I just think that it, you, you know, and I'm not just specifically picking on the jazz world. I mean, there are guys that are you know blues players that are like, oh, you're you're not playing that Delta blues right, boy. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you're not you're not cool enough, and like every single note seems like you know a battle for the the realism of. The art form, right? And yeah, and it's just like, yeah, man. There's not, you know, it doesn't have to be encyclopedic, right? Every <laughs> single time, but you know, the the whole thing with with improvisation that you guys do, um, you know, it, it most of the time it's not about what you're playing; it's about what you're not playing. You have to have really good ears to be in a room with three or four other people playing off of one another, you know, how, how would you say to somebody that wants to try that? How do you develop that skill? Cause it's a hard one to develop.
1: Yeah. And I think I kind of, I had to work backwards because I was that kind of person who, who listened, but did too much. I think when you're in a room, the, the less is more approach is really important because then you can build from there. If you start with so much, you know, you're not really listening to the full room. You're listening to yourself. You're trying these licks you were practicing or things like that. But if you start simple and you and you answer someone's question that they throw at you, like if someone's playing a guitar riff and you hear that there's silence, and if you have something to say, say it. Add a couple hits with your bass drum or an accent with your snare. But you know what? If you have nothing to say, don't worry about it. Like you don't have to add a ton to the conversation. You know, you can, you can speak with these instruments and fill in gaps and leave space. Because if you leave space, someone else is going to fill it in most likely. And you can sit back as a listener and just listen to the beautiful music you're creating. If you're laying a nice groove, if you're a drummer, I'm talking about, if you're a drummer and you're, you're laying down a groove and you really don't have anything to say except for a couple of things here and there, you're still improvising and you're still adding something really important to the conversation. Just because Elvin Jones played a ton of triplets when he was talking with John Coltrane, you're not talking with John Coltrane on the bandstand. You're talking with somebody else. So don't play like Elvin talking with Coltrane. <laughs> You've know, you got to make sure that you, you have your own conversation with somebody, and you let them speak, and they'll let you speak. And then when you're done, you guys have had this conversation, and it feels really good. I've mm-hmm. learned that listening back to myself. Like, wow, well, I'm playing too much. And the less I play, listen back, I go, man, what a beautiful conversation with that person. We spoke, you know, we 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 learned something about each other. We went somewhere different, but like we were adding some interesting rhythms with each other. We were punctuating sentences or we were, you know, we were adding commas here or semicolons. And we created this beautiful phrase with each other. And I think that's the important thing is build from there. Start super, super simple. There's no need to throw all your hot licks out there. I think it was John Riley who said in his Beyond Bop book, "Like all this information is precious. Don't use it. (laughs) (laughs) Practice it. Understand it. But don't you dare play this in in a context. You know, you learn it so that if you hear it can be used, use it. Yeah. Don't use it because you know it. Yeah. Like when you read a if you read a book. And everybody needs to, they have to throw all their scholarly words out there. I shut it right away. It's like, man, I don't want to hear this. Give me something I can read and learn from. I don't want to have to be looking up your words. Yeah. You know, let's, let us let me do it. You know, and I'm, uh, you know it's, that's me. I don't want to read all the scholarly words. Uh, you know, these words I have to look up. So...
0: Yeah man. I dude, that's some really good advice. Um I love yeah. it. And I, it, you know, one of the things that always sticks out to me, um I, the great Jeff Williams said to me uh in an interview, he was like, "Stop thinking." Mm. <laughs> you know, he was like, when I'm in a situation where it's all improv, he was like, "I just have to tell myself, stop thinking. Stop yeah. stop thinking about what to play next." stop thinking about what's going on, you know, just, just be. And gosh, you know, I, it, when I think back about that, I'm like, man, that's spot on. Um, and, and that's probably why I'll never be a good jazz player because I can't, I can't turn that off. And I have this, you know, crazy desire to have a backbeat on every two and four, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it just coming from the rock world. Um, it's it's very difficult for people that aren't in that world to turn that off that instinct
1: it is it is um it's very hard and i honestly don't know if people actually achieve that level that they want i think like anything music we always try to be better and better and i think the one thing that's practiced uh that we should practice more is as a jazz musicians actually practice improvising i think we we can we can get caught up in, like, different books and texts and exercises, but, you know, put the book away and actually practice improvising for a little bit, and you'll learn, like, uh, what do I do? And it's like, oh, this whole new world to practice. It's just, you know, uh, practicing the actual, the actual idea of letting your mind go, and it's one of the hardest things to do yeah. because we get so stuck in our heads. That's the other thing about education is we get so stuck in our heads when it comes to college or lessons. Um, it can be really hard to break away from that stuff. You know, I'm I'm using jazz musicians as references, but I believe it was Albert Eiler who said, um, you know, or maybe even Charlie Parker. I think it might've been both. Charlie Parker once said it in in like a lesson, you know, learn everything in all 12 keys and then forget it. You know, just like do all that work and then forget you did it. Yeah. And then something inside of you, you know, it will come out and you're playing more organically. You know, I don't play saxophone, so I don't know, but I can understand kind of his methodology behind it. <clears throat> yeah. Well,
0: yeah. I mean, look, you know, just because you can play blazing fast, Radom or, you know, yeah. whatever the case may be, it doesn't mean you should do that in some tender love ballad on the bandstand at a wedding. Right. I mean, it's like, so it's the same kind of thing for rock players too. You know, I, I I say all the time, it's not necessarily about the notes that you play. It's about the ones Mm -hmm. you don't, you know, the, the space, the breath, right. I mean, that's, yeah. that's kind of where the magic happens in all musical forms.
1: Yes. I find that hard to, I've had to stop myself because as a jazz musician, I play a lot on the snare drum and when I would play rock gigs and I have one coming up too, um, it's hard for me to just play two and four with no ghosts. It's oh, a hard yeah. thing to do. Yeah. A very, very hard thing to do. And it's so frustrating when I catch myself in the dancing and it's like, man, stop it. Just play two and four. Yeah. Like you realize like the older I got, it's like, how hard is it to play two and four? It's actually pretty tough to just sit there and lay back and like hear your two and four without any additional notes in between. Just whack, whack. And it just sounds beautiful and it feels great. To do that you know uh but yeah, it's really hard to do yeah well i mean
0: it's it's hard for anybody to do you know i mean look yeah. i'm an irish guy i love you know van and and all of his music but like the thoughts of playing brown-eyed girl again you know you get bored with that real quick yeah. and you're like okay it can i you know can i put a ghost note on the e you <laughs> know, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the case may be, and you start getting into that zone of, I'm putting stuff there that just doesn't need to be there, right? Yeah, it, it's the hardest thing in the world because, you know, if, you know, I don't know how many wedding gigs you do, but it's always brown eyed girl, brick house, celebrate, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you're just like, I don't want to play this the way the record is, <laughs> but, yeah, because your mind just starts wandering and sometimes you just have to get lost in the kick on one and three, the snare on two and four and hit the hi hat on all of them. You know,
1: yeah, I mean, you can, you can meditate on that for a while too. If you, you can zone out just playing something like that. I used to try to do that, just play something simple over and over and over and just meditate on it. And, and something like a two and four, like it's just a steady backbeat. It just feels great. And you can get into a zone and just, Kind of out-of-body experience listening to the whole band and how your groove fits it's awesome but again i like it's from my world of just being overly busy that's a hard thing to do
0: (laughs) yeah man it is and you know i i think we're both speaking the truth here but you know if you can as you said meditate on just that simple rock groove you know one and three on the kick two and four on the snare you know, in the rock world, that's the stuff that'll get you hired for the next 12 gigs. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Nobody cares about your awesome flourish of ghost notes, (laughs) you know, all over everything else. Like a a band leader, a singer, you know, a guitarist, whatever, they're going to be like, Oh man, that guy just came in and locked it down. He folded it up and that's what we need.
1: Yeah. The steadiness of the groove. And one, I think the most important thing is overlooked by a lot of young drummers Know the damn form, so that they can trust you.
0: Oh yeah, you know
1: we we often overlook that stuff. Not even just jazz. Don't worry about those forms, but like your pop tunes, they have those tricky little things in there. You got to know that form, so you you know keep it simple and and study that form because it's that's all that stuff happening is is really really hard. That's the one thing I found in all music. It's really hard now for drummers is a lot of times young drummers forget that there's a form of a song and they'll like listen and rely on somebody else. No, people are listening to you to rely on playing that fill into the chorus or playing that fill into the bridge. They're relying on you to know that damn form.
0: A- Absolutely. But yeah, because if you're in something that's got a lot of turnarounds or little sidewalks or, or whatever, yeah. the, whatever the case may be, if you miss it, everybody's going to turn around and look at you period. Yeah. You know, they're they're not looking at the keyboard player. They're not looking at the bass no. player. They're looking at you because yeah. hey man, you were supposed to do <laughs> a fill to bring us out of that section or to carry us into yeah. the next section. And it's I, I agree. Young people that are listening know the form <laughs> of the song. Learn the arrangement yeah. because that's your job. Unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to look at yeah. it, but knowing the arrangement is your job as a drummer
1: yeah there's that comfort level that you want to give people and that you want to feel from people too that you're playing with you want to feel comfortable on the bandstand because if you're comfortable and you feel good then you're home free for the rest of the night you're like i know what we're doing i'm good yeah you you're, you're, you can breathe and then i think that's the point where you mentioned you know um that's when you don't have to think because you know it it's like, I'm just playing on autopilot and I know this form inside and out. You're just listening. Like you listening to the song. You're not, now you're just listening to the music that you've been preparing for. You're not even worried about playing. You're just playing and you're in the zone, you're in the music. And that's when you can start to meditate on that stuff. You're just listening, having a good time. Yep. Whether you hate the song or not, it's still a good time playing that groove.
0: Yep. Preach it, brother Dylan. Let me tell you, <laughs> um, you know, I, I'll leave you with this. Um, I was on a, uh, kind of a multi-band festival gig this has been several years ago and and everybody's going to remain anonymous but uh mm-hmm. the the band that played directly after us i just remember the the monitor engineer was asking the drummer he was like well what do you want in your wedge and he was like guitar and vocals no bass and i was <laughs> i just looked at my bandmates and and i was like they're not going to be very tight i guarantee it <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, just, I, I, I don't know where that comes from. I really don't. If it works for you, great. But, you know, know your lane and get in it and do it and do it well. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. I, that's kind of what we can take for the last 10 minutes of conversation that we've had.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, you got to, I mean, it's the base thing. I think it's really important to hear everybody. You know, for the most part, because uh, you want to hear how you fit in. Like he's like, you know, you want to fit into that that band, your team. Like I, I always tell students who also play sports, like you're the, you're playing with a band, you're a team. You got to hear everybody. Don't leave somebody out. You got to know how you're fitting in with that bass player. How that singer? Are you are you matching that? Are you playing mm-hmm. like? Are you inside that singer's phrasing? You know, are you in the guitar? You know, playing hits together. Like, you want to hear that stuff. You going to be engaged with, with all that stuff. That's really important.
0: Yeah, it is. And, and you know, if you're missing any of the ingredients, the cake won't rise. I mean, that's that's yeah. the analogy that I always use. You know, you can't you can't skip the flour. You can't skip the sugar. You can't skip the eggs. You got to have it all. So, um, yeah. all right, brother. Well, listen. I want to be respectful of your time. Before I let you go, uh, the website is uh, is it dylanjackmusic.com.
1: Yes, Okay. jackmusic.com, yeah.
0: Fantastic. And I, I'm assuming, you know, you're teaching at the college and everything. Are you still taking on private students as well?
1: Uh, I am. I'm mostly, I'm mostly teaching through a, a beautiful institution in Groton, Massachusetts. But uh, at the college level, I just teach history. I'm not teaching um, uh, any lessons, but online I do accept students. I do accept, um, or unless they're local. To the Bristol, Rhode Island area, which everybody's local to the Bristol, Rhode Island area in Rhode Island because it's so small. All right. But uh, uh, so yeah, I do. I do. I, mean, I am accepting uh, private students. That's the long answer. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Well,
0: well, you know, I mean, we've got listeners all over the country. So you know, if somebody's mm-hmm. looking for some lessons, you know, I always want to, you know, try to make that connection if I can. And you know, mm-hmm. the, the album is going to be out on October twenty second. Um twenty so seventh. Twenty seventh, okay, I'm sorry. 27th, um yeah. it's okay. so, so um just to be clear, are you guys doing physical uh, copies of this or is it only gonna be through like Bandcamp and Spotify and all those places?
1: Well, I have a limited run of a hundred CDs because mostly it's been, you know, um sales have been online. You know, digital band camp stuff. But I do have, I had to do a physical copy of this just because it was like a, I, this was my baby. This whole thing was a very big learning experience for me and I, I thoroughly enjoyed every step of it. And I felt like it wasn't complete to not have a physical copy. So there's a very limited run of those.
0: Okay. Well, I always ask because that's the format that pays you the most and that's what we want to yeah. sell here. So. Yeah. Um so I I'm assuming folks can reach out to you through the website if they want to get their hands on a physical
1: copy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: All right, fantastic. I know the,
1: the video the movie will be up too at that time too. I believe um and and that will be accessible at that uh on the 27th as well.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, I can't wait to to, to get the full experience. You know, I'm so I'm I'm awesome. going to make sure I do that because you know again as i was listening to it i was like gosh i wish i had the movie and you know like i said i didn't know the history of the project so that's that's going to be cool mm-hmm. and i'll look forward to that as a special halloween treat this year
1: awesome fantastic that's a, that's, that's when it's best enjoyed
0: absolutely <laughs> well dylan and, and you know man i mean this sincerely anytime you've got anything going on that you want to share we'll we'll have you back in a heartbeat just let me know and uh we'd love to catch up with you and keep up with your career as things change. So, uh, you know, make sure you put me in the, uh, in the speed dial there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jamie, very much. This is fantastic.
0: You are welcome. We're going to send some folks your way and, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to come on, man.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: All right. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Yeah, man.
0: All right, guys and girls, that's going to wrap up episode one sixty one of the drum shuffle podcast. As always, thank you so much for uh, listening to our podcast. We simply cannot do this without each and every one of you doing so week in and week out. We really appreciate it. The biggest thing you can do to help us out is share a link with a friend that helps us more than you'll ever know. It costs you nothing and it means the absolute world to me. So share a link with a friend and tell them to check out the Drum Shuffle podcast Another thing you can do to help us out is hit the subscribe button on whatever uh, platform you use to listen to the podcast. You don't want to miss any of the upcoming episodes that we have. Uh, We try to do a really great job of having a wide variety of drummers on the show to talk about their careers and projects, uh, and the future is going to be no exception to that rule. As always, uh, I answer every single email that, that we get over here at the podcast. Our email address is thedrumshufflepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can always find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. Again, thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening. It means the world to me. I hope everybody has a great week out there. Go catch some live music before it all goes away. So until next time, may your heads stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody.